Welcome to the Health Leader Forge. My name is Mark Bonica, and I'm a professor of health management and policy here at the University of New Hampshire and the host of the podcast. Today is a special milestone for this podcast. This is our 50th interview. We've been doing this podcast for a little over two years, and I've learned so much from the guests, and I hope you have too. I'm very pleased to have today's guest, Richard Silveria, as our 50th interview. Rich is the Senior Vice President for Finance and the Chief Financial Officer for Boston Medical Center. Boston Medical Center is a safety net hospital with roughly 80% of its $1.2 billion in revenues coming from Medicare and Medicaid. In addition to being a safety net hospital, it is an academic teaching hospital associated with Boston University's medical school. Rich has been the Chief Financial Officer since 2010. During his tenure, he helped engineer a financial turnaround of the organization and continues to strive to be a leader focused on driving change. In this podcast, we trace Rich's career from a start in biology and education through computer programming and financial systems to today where he is a senior leader in the third largest health system in Massachusetts. I want to say thank you to the College of Health and Human Services and the Northern New England Association of Healthcare Executives for their ongoing support of the Health Leader Forge. If you find this podcast valuable, would you please rate us and leave feedback? It helps people discover us. Also, feel free to share the podcast with your colleagues as well. Thanks for listening, and here is Richard Silveria, Chief Financial Officer for Boston Medical Center. Welcome to the Forge Rich. I'm glad to be here. So you earned a Bachelor of Science in Education from the University of Massachusetts at Lowell. Yes. What drew you to UMass and, and why education? How did that come about? So Lowell is right in my backyard. I was in Bill Ricker at the time. I was considering medical school at the time, and I uh, applied to a few schools. I applied to, to BC was one of them, BU. And I got in, but my dad being conservative, you know, he came up through the ranks, of, you know, to, was in Korea and uh, did some training for like hotel and restaurant management, very conservative in terms of like, well, why would you go to BC and spend this much yeah. <laughs> versus you can go to UMass or yeah, at the time it was University of Lowell and it was Lowell Tech and he said, and you won't have as much debt and you have a bio degree and then go on. Yeah. So I did that and um, it was a good school. Uh, I went to other, um, went to Northeastern later and I look at the, uh, the quality of the, um, the professors that I had. They were great. Uh, so I started taking science and and then I started taking other classes. I took a, a couple of computer programming classes that I, I kind of liked the logical puzzle. And uh, I took an accounting class. So a friend of mine was uh, going to be a CPA. And I said, I ought to try it. You know, my sisters were nurses. I had two sisters that were nurses. And I always did really well in science. So I said, well, let me try it. And I found out that I liked it. And so I said, well, you know, why don't I finish this degree with get some education? So I had uh, health, but I could also teach general science, biology, and chemistry, you know, in, in the state of Massachusetts at the time. Okay. So that's, that's how, uh, that was my journey through, through college anyways. So, and that, I saw your first job, it looks like out of college, was at Coate System Sims? Yes. Sorry, Coate Sims? Coate Sims, yeah. Okay. And they were, uh, they were, in, uh, they are no longer. But they were a community hospital network, Choate Hospital in Woburn, Sims Hospital in Arlington, and there was a health center in Wilmington. I actually got that job. I, I just kind of beat the pavement, you know, and sent resumes everywhere. Could have papered my, my, my house with, with rejection letters. But, oh. but I got a job initially. My first job for the first few months was actually doing health promotion, teaching classes, 
as part of their public relations department. Okay. It was only a few months. I didn't put on my resume, and uh, but that was great. I it actually leveraged my science background. It got me into healthcare, which I knew I wanted to be in healthcare. I was interested in healthcare, and I saw it as a, a large economy here regionally. And I and I wanted wanted to give back to society, and so I figured, well, I want to do business, but I want to do it in healthcare. Okay. And so I started there, and then and then a uh, an IT job opened up. So that's how I got into uh, into systems from there. Okay. So you moved from education to IT. Yeah. How did you make the move from? And what were you doing in IT at the time? So, so I was I was I had taken a, a number of like numerous computer programming classes okay. as both while I was at Lowell and then I also took night school and I did I started to round out to prepare for an MBA and at the time I wasn't sure whether or not I actually wanted to pursue uh, information systems and computer science it was math at the time I yeah. but it was you know computer science was an emerging field and so I had all that 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 training and they had an opening for a a financial systems person and I had started my MBA, and they, they said, well, yeah, why don't, we'll, we'll give So it, some of it's luck, right? So you, you apply, you're there, they, they know you uh, as a hard worker, as someone who could present themselves reasonably well. I, was, I could speak, I, I, I taught, but they were taking a chance on me in terms of, you know, am I going to be effective in IT? And then the luck part of it is, uh, you know, what's, at any time when you apply for a job, you don't know what the pool of candidates are going to be, right? So that's probably the, 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 the fortunate part is that I competed pretty well with whoever applied for that job at the time, and I was lucky enough to land it. And then I just went at it doggedly and tried to, 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 to learn as much as I could. And, and, and that was always been my, my approach is to, to, you know, when I was in school was, you know, get the A. And yeah. then, you know, you get your job, you know, you just want to, you know, that same work ethic just yeah. uh, just uh, uh, continued. So you were in financial systems. So it was IT, finance, finance and IT together. Yeah. So what I did is, believe it or not, it, it was the 80s and there was a paper general ledger. Okay. And so we built uh, a general ledger. Uh, not all of it was paper, but parts of it were. We uh, did accounts payable, uh, payroll, set up the, the the revenue cycle system, so the billing systems, which are fairly complicated. I also had the opportunity to do um, some things that were uh, not entirely financial, but they, they were uh, quasi-clinical, where you would order a lab from the floor, so the nurse might order a lab from the floor, and a requisition would print in the in the laboratory, and the phlebotomist would go up to the floor, and it would, you had to make decisions to charge on order or charge on on results, and so um, order entry was it was called order communications at the time before they had electronic health records. So yeah. it was a great opportunity for me. One and, and DRGs and uh, groupers and case weights and things like that all came out at the time. So I remember building out the DRG tables. And so it was just a great, you know, confluence of IT, but also I got to learn how like the financial systems kind of hung together from a transaction perspective. And I could also see from a data flow when a patient comes in and they're registered and, the, and they're, um, they're interviewed and how that data then goes into the system and then how that data then cascades to the pharmacy systems and the lab systems and says, hey, Rich Silvera is here. And then when you go down, they don't have to re-register them. And then the, the charges hit that particular account. So it was, it was a, great, a great opportunity to just kind of through the, 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 the way the data flow, you know, you can make inferences about how the 
the chronology of the care process worked. So it was it was a great experience. Uh, I really enjoyed it, and but I was going for an MBA, and uh, that's why I didn't stay in IT. Okay, so you were work. Uh, you you eventually were the financial systems manager. Yes. So what was that role like? Did so you- that was really um, yeah. I, I oversaw all the financial systems. So. So I had the general ledger. So I had to, you know, be able to interface with with the accounting department um, and uh, you know research why the system didn't work or set up new cost centers or you know debit and credit accounts, automate them, accounts payable, payroll, yeah, in the billing system. So initially, it started out as an analyst, but then I oversaw a small team. It was a small okay. place, but I had two staff, and some of them were uh, working on interfaces. Or it was a timeshare system, so uh, a timeshare means that you you actually you send in jobs in batch. Okay. And so you do uh, your payroll, and the payroll runs in batch, and then you get exception reports. Okay, well this this pay type didn't work, or this person had an invalid number, or whatever, and you'd have to fix the error. So I had people who would fix batch errors wow. and make sure that they stayed in sync <laughs> and that that tied to the general ledger, yeah. uh, et cetera. And then similarly, you know, you'd run scheduling um, the billing jobs for the various payers, Blue Cross, Tufts, Harvard, uh, Blue Cross, and then making sure that the payments were posted and, and they tied out to the GL. So a lot of it was transactional, yeah. but it, some of it was also, you know, making sure that the systems uh, interoperated that the, when a when a charge came across, you had a GL number that it would point to, and it would it would post automatically to the general ledger. So, but I had a, a small team. One one person would, you know, kind of help me configure the system and run reports. I also wrote reports, and another person would do more of their clerical, you know, kind of the batch jobs or interface work. And it was a, the beginnings of micro PCs. Yeah. So it was, you know, it was really quite innovative when you downloaded data from our green bar report. Um, so your students listening now is like, what is a green bar and what's a dot matrix printer? Uh, <laughs> this is true. Right? And right. so, um, in fact, you would, uh, you know, when you had spreadsheets, you'd have 132 characters. You'd actually turn it sideways and you had software called Sideways. And it would print the, the, the schedule sideways so you could fit all your rows or your or your financial statements on it, but but we used to take the uh, the the data and and have delimited data. So you probably see that in in Excel where you have you know date uh, or numeric or or alphanumeric, and you have your data types and you download it into into X. Well, it was Lotus at the time or um, VisiCalc even before that, and then into uh, and relational databases uh, like. Paradox was one back in those days, so wow. it wasn't all always an all Microsoft Office. Back yeah, then. right, right, right. Uh, you left Choate Sims yeah. and moved on to Lawrence General right. in 1988. Yeah. What, what 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 kind of spurred the move? The time. So uh, well, uh, you know, I, I I had done a little over five years at at Choate Sims. I had I just want to just one one experience I had at Choate that I thought was a really a good experience for me. I was going for my MBA, as I said, and I had come back from my quantitative analysis class, 
and I was in there with a lot of engineers. I was at Northeastern. Okay. And a lot of them, I mean, I took calculus, but I wasn't, you know, I, I, I was an expert. These guys were experts. Then they don't had to learn one basic formula and they would derive the rest. So I had all these things in my head. And I got, I ate, I aced it. I came back to work and I told my uh, boss and said, you know, yeah, I, just, I feel great. I know I just aced that. And uh, to which they said, you know, well, you know, and I was one of the better employees and said, well, why don't you get an A in your job, right? Oh, so, so I, <laughs> like, well, that was a rather crass comment. You walk away like, that was not very nice. But then I thought about it. And, you know, I said, you know, that's, that's probably some pretty good advice because what am I willing to do? So I went at night. Uh-huh. So what was I willing to do to get that A? I mean, I was, you know, so you, you're, you're, you're in your 20s. You go to a your cookout or whatever. You say, well, you know, I can't only stay an hour. I got to get home. I got to study or whatever. And I started thinking, you know, well, why don't I get an A in my job? You yeah. know, and so that was one of the, and I'm going to talk about another one in Lawrence, but that was kind of a defining kind of career, kind of snide remark, but kind of a kick in the pants a bit and said, you know, well, if I really do want to be influential and make an impact on an organization, you probably can't do it as a C player. And so that was one of the, just in terms of like sharing something that happened to me with your students, it's like, you know, if you're willing to do that and you, you know, you know, get up early and you're tired at night and you'll study at four in the morning to get ready for your test, we all been there. So, so if you had to do that, you know, I didn't do it at the same intensity, I will admit, but I did bring, you know, books home and learn about DRG systems and things like, well, why don't I understand so I can support this person over there differently? And that was kind of a, a defining moment for me. So I left Choate Sims because I had an opportunity then to segue into finance, and it was kind of hard to get into finance without having finance. I didn't have the degree yet either. Okay. So Lawrence General was actually a Boston Globe ad. So Choate Sims was a cold call, just persistence. Lawrence General, I answered a Globe ad, and I got interviewed, and they said, well, you know, you're not, you don't have, you know, your finance degree, you've never done it before, but, you know, we'll teach you. And part of the reason they took the chance on me is because they had just gone through a system conversion, a data system conversion to a new billing system, and it wasn't going well. Okay. And uh, they said, well, you know, why don't you, you know, help us kind of turn this system around and, uh, and, we'll, and we'll teach you finance. So at the time, that was 1988, I was 28 years old, and um, my wife was pregnant with my second daughter. And, and, and so I started there on Halloween, so I showed the, the, oh. you know, it. Oh, <laughs> day to start yeah, exactly. a job. <laughs> ominous. And, uh, but it ended up being one of the best things that ever happened to me. So I got there, and the first day, I went in there, literally the first day, they sent me into Boston to pick up a check for $600,000 So because, uh, because uh, our state senator, Pat McGovern, had helped us to get that because we were having difficulty getting claims out of the system so there wasn't cash coming in and you know when I was researching I was a kid you know so I wasn't really well networked but they said well you know they just did the turnover you know new CEO new COO new CFO they're looking to kind of turn this place around so I thought hey this is a great opportunity and it ended up being it but it really tested my mettle because after that, within a couple of weeks, they were in front of the QCare conversion board okay. to, to, to either convert it to something else or potentially close the hospital because they are having so much financial difficulty. And so I, within six months that I was there, pretty much everyone who, no, really everybody who, who recruited me there was gone. The one people that were going to teach me. 
And I remember uh, the CFO talking to me about, you know, him going to the board and we were looking at, you know, the cash coming in and looking at making payroll, like just grinding it out day after day. And they say, who is this guy? That's going to turn around this this business office because it was accounts receivable that I was I started in, and um, and the, the basically they said you know who else is going to come here right it was the best thing that ever happened because people from Shout were calling me say the bricks are shaking out of the mortar you want to come back and uh, I just didn't want to do it uh, but at the same time you know my wife's but in fact. <laughs> One of the because I was in the in the uh, claims area, they would look up eligibility online in Blue Cross to see you know does this person have you know um, benefits and do they have an, a valid insurance contract? And like week two, someone said, "Oh, we haven't paid our insurance. Uh, we have no insurance uh, coverage." You know, so you know when you're you're a kid and you hear all that, and I you know for whatever reason, I just said, "Look, I'm gonna I'm just gonna take it one day at a time." And and we just I just basically try to understand what the issues were, and uh, and 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 try to categorize them uh, by type of issue, and then kind of prioritize them in terms of criticality. And my style, in in the uh, in the approach working with these people, I had never done it before. Is what I found kind of when I was in Northeast and I took a, a class and they used the Harvard business uh, case study approach. And uh, yeah, management by walking around, ask questions and those kinds of things. That kind of stuck with me. And so I would ask people, they would come to me with questions. And if I wasn't familiar, which frequently I wasn't, I would say, well, tell me, you know, what, tell me your experience here and what would you do? And I would gather data. And they was kind of surprising. The, the, the benefit was is one is that like, they were surprised I was asking them. But there was also like, wow, my opinion matters. So you have an engaged employee. And then I would just kind of graph things together. Well, well, what if we kind of like, I was thinking this, but that's a good idea. And I'd modify my thought. And we just doggedly work through the issues in terms of criticality and slowly over time turn the place around. So uh, uh, that's a long digression. But that's oh, kind that's of a, um, you know, one of my earlier. And that was probably in my career. That was probably my defining moment in terms of, you know, the inflection point that got me to where I am. In terms of commitment to finance? In, in terms of commitment to finance and in terms of, you know, developing credibility as, yeah. a, as a performer. Okay. Uh, you know that I stung. I stuck. I stuck with it then, and uh, and I was there ten years. But we were went from like you know over 150 days in accounts receivable. So a day in receivable is, let's say that you sell washing machines, but you don't sell it as a retail. You build them later and say they're a thousand dollars each. If you have five thousand dollars in receivables, you have five days in receivable. We had like a hundred almost 160 days in receivable, and you know we get, and it was it's a high Medicaid, so Medicaid because the state tends to pay slower because right. the, the state has its financial challenges. But we got it in the 60s in a couple of days and maintained it. And then I I took on other functions in uh, at uh, Lawrence that you'll talk about. But um, but to me that was. You know, there's to be able to kind of doggedly go through that and kind of see the issues and try to focus on them in terms of criticality, which is going to be the most impactful thing in terms of turning around the receivable and getting cash in here and then trying to work through people in an area where you really didn't know what you're talking about was that was that was probably the best training of my life. So. How many people were you supervising when you first got there? About that, fifty. About fifty. Wow. Yeah. So, so I went from like two to 50. right. That's going to say your, your initial job. Yeah. yeah. So going from two to fifty. So, what did you learn as a supervisor? So you, you kind of talked about 
engagement? What were other, you know, kind of what were some of the lessons that you learned so I, at that point that you have stuck with you? Yeah. So I, you know, one of the things I, I uh, some of it was through my learning, at, you know, and just like your students are, you know, I've always felt like nobody knows their job probably better than the person who does it every day. And I don't pretend to know everything. So I would ask a lot of questions. Well, the first thing, I guess, is kind of like you learn in kindergarten, right? You know, the golden rule, right? And so I, I try to treat people with respect. And I try to treat them the way I'd want to be treated. And so that's kind of the baseline thing. And you be professional and you be assertive. You know, you, you tell people they come to you with their problems and, and you try to help them. But if I'm solving their problems all the time, then we've got a different problem. So I would try to be honest, but, you know, uh, balanced. And I would, I, would, I would try to engage them. But if they were uh, not doing their work or, you know, complaining about so-and-so or whatever, I would just tell them, look, I, you need to focus on what you're doing. I'll deal with them and try to just set boundaries with people. And then they respect you because they're going to test you, uh, especially as a kid. You know, you're 28 years old. And some of these people have listened to this probably aren't 28 yet. But you still I still feel like you were a kid at that point. And um, and these people are in their 50s, et cetera. And, you know, they, they've got a, a few more years of experience than, than I did. But what I try to do is just be fair and just ask them questions, respect them, thank them. But, but really, almost immediately, just make sure that you set the tone that, yes, I want to have a, a collegial conversation. I want to, you to be approachable. I don't, wanna, I, don't, I don't believe in the authoritarian. I think that's probably the old-fashioned style of, of you know, command and control, but more as a teammate. Yeah. But a teammate that is also kind of the coach. And uh, so I would always tell people what I expected of them. And then when they didn't deliver what they expected of them, I would be respectful and say, come on in, let's talk. And I said, you gave me this. This is what I thought I asked you for. This is what good would look like to me. Hmm. So can you come back with what would I would expect for good? And, and, and then they would. And, and you don't accept because then you, you, one thing you have to realize early on when you go from two people managers, that you could probably carry two people if you work harder. There is no way you're going to do the work of 50 people. Right. So you have to learn that very quickly. And you're standing on that. You're only as good as the people that, that you work with. And, uh, and you're standing on their shoulders. And so I, what I found is I, could, I did not have to fire. I had to fire only one person because of a behavioral issue. I didn't like doing it because you look at people and you see car payments and kids and mortgages and things and, you know, you, you feel for it. Sometimes you have to do it. But I was able to kind of get the people to the next level of performance um, by, by one, the style. And then quickly I would try to, because finance is highly uh, measurable. So days and receivable, claims over 90 days, cash collections for the month. And I would put up charts and graphs okay. Okay. and say, we did this this month. Let's make this the goal. Varmish General is not a, uh, it still isn't, uh, it's, it's not a uh, wealthy hospital. But I was able to say, look at, you know, we're going we're gonna to do a pizza party or we're going to do something, you know, just something, you know, casual and say thank you. You know, I would have loved to do an incentive comp plan, but we just didn't have the resources to do that. But people appreciated. I thought that they thought it was fun. And, and it, just the um, going around and saying, you know, that was a great month and thank you. And, and um, you know, some of them been there 10 years and they maybe didn't know how good they were doing because their world ended at their cubicle. 
and you try to connect it to the larger ecosystem of the, of the department in terms of claims going out, cash coming in, deposits, deposits to posting so that you post it, it goes to the patient or the next payer. It all is connected. Try to get them to understand that. I don't, you know, and then try to broad, the broader uh, vision is, you know, cash is the lifeblood of this hospital and this hospital saves people's lives. And they're just, you know, I'm just a biller. I'm like, no, actually you're not. It's, you, what you do is important. Yeah. And so that, that has worked, you know, that approach has worked in all my jobs. If you try to connect it to the broader, you know, the, the broader objective, if you're not for profit, whatever the broader objective and strategy, and that what they do connects to that and get them excited about it. It's hard over years to do that. Yeah. Because people, you know, people get tired, you know, and your, your company inevitably goes through performance troughs. But you have to be, you know, vigilant about it. And I think you have to, you know, you have to walk the walk and talk the talk. You've got to be fair and, you, and you've got to be forthright. And if, if you have to deliver a message that's not sugary sweet, you got to figure out a way to tell them, and the, the, at least the respect. They might not like the message you have to give them, but they're not going to go back and say, "Well, you misrepresented." Yeah. Um, and so that's 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 how I approached it, and uh, and that's how I think it, it, it worked out. I wanted to ask you. So you finished up your MBA yep. while you were at Lawrence General yep. uh, with a focus in finance at yep. Northeastern, as you mm-hmm. mentioned. Mm-hmm. Um, what made you decide to choose the? MBA as opposed to say an MHA. Well, it was a, it was that's a good question. I had I and I also thought about an MPH. Okay. Um, and I thought that with my science background and uh, the other things that I had done outside I was an EMT for a while. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. And as a kid, I was a lifeguard and I trained as a ski patrol. I never really did much of it, but a friend of mine did it. I did that, so I said. You know, I had advanced first aid. I said, well, and I take, you know, an EMT course. So I did. I kept it up for a few years. I didn't do a lot of it. But I thought I had a lot of health background already. I didn't have business background. I didn't have, like, a business. And I wasn't quite sure what I wanted to do with it other than I wanted to have progressively more important or more significant roles that could impact the the outcomes for an organization. That was kind of my direction. Okay. I wanted to get in a position where I could, what I did actually had a meaningful impact on the performance of the organization. I didn't know I was going to end up as a CFO. Yeah. And, but I, I thought that, you know, hey, you can always, you know, always find work in business. I've already kind of, in, in a, with a health degree, um, would it be more, would I round myself out more with an MBA? And that was the reason I did it. So I was wondering, uh, you know, was it that you saw yourself at that point as a finance professional, as a, just a manager, or, or, or were you really committed to healthcare at that point? So it sounds like maybe you were leaving yourself open a little bit to leave the A industry. little bit open on healthcare, although I, emotionally I was healthcare. Okay. I was just like, but if something happened, could I do something else, right? Just kind of maybe a, 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 a safeguard. I I liked I, I I when I see when I did the IT it kind of solidified my I liked the puzzle of finance you know the the, the balance sheet the the uh, financial side but also kind of the data flow and how it worked and I said well I wouldn't be mind you know be overseeing those those areas 
rather than create the pipes that support those areas and, and, and the data. And that skill set combined really helped me uh, because then I could talk to the IT. When I first started Lawrence, they actually had me in there. I was working in the system. Yeah. Other places, they usually have more hygiene around you know, who can configure a system and who can. That's, that's appropriate. But I, I, uh, but I, I liked, I liked the, the uh, kind of the rigor of finance. It's, it's somewhat, I didn't really like, I was a finance major, not an accounting major. Okay. I like the creative creativity of the functions of the dollar. I, the debits and credits were too regimented for me, but I like to be a you know, future, future value, not present value, internal rate of return. So I like that creativity. What do you see as the difference between finance and accounting? Just I, I think... You're talking about uh, yeah, it. Yeah, so much. Like, so yeah, the, the difference really is I think the accounting is, is highly technical. You know, there's, there's, there's the generally accepted accounting principles, there's FAS, there's GAP. So there's definitely a framework and rules, et cetera. And you need, and it, but the thing about it, you need to know enough about it because it is the language of business. Right. And so you need to be able to read, you know, a, 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 an income statement and a balance sheet and changes of cash flow and those kinds of things. But I, I think, I don't know that I could sit at a desk and do debits and credits all day, and I knew that. Yeah. But I, th- I always when I took like real estate finance and, you know, it was the early days of you know puts and calls. They didn't really have you know swaptions and derivatives and hedge funds and all that. That was still to come. I thought that was kind of fascinating. You know, the, doing doing the the net present value and doing you know valuations and. So I liked it, and so I just said, "I'm gonna, I'm gonna do my finance major. I'm gonna do business. I got business, but I'm gonna because I just thought it was more creative." And and I guess the difference is, is accountants kind of, kind of keep the score and and tell you where you're going. Uh, well, sometimes where you've been, and whereas finance, sometimes you'd look at a business case, you'd look at the future revenue, you'd look at the cost, you'd you'd net it down. These are the future cash flows, you discount it back based upon a certain uh, targeted rate. Maybe it's your weighted average cost of capital, and you have to have a certain hurdle rate. And to me, that's like, does this business case make sense or not? To me, that was way more exciting yeah. than, um, than, but you know, everyone's different. And, and I've got some great accountants, and I couldn't do my job without them. And so you need them. And uh, some of them challenge you too with those, you know, the, you know, the, 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 the accounting rules. I was just more excited with finance. So you started out at Lawrence General as a director of patient financial services. You did yeah. that for about five years, and then you yeah. were promoted to director of payment systems, yeah. and then ultimately vice president of managed care. Right. Can you talk about those uh, those other roles? Yeah. So actually, you know, part of the reason I was promoted is that I'd been there five years. I was approached by actually it was University Hospital right next door here. Okay. Um, but it was a bigger, you know, teaching hospital, same kind of role. And I talked to my boss about it. I said, look, you know, I can go into Boston and, you know, get some Boston experience and spread my wings a little. And, and, he, and, and I had done a good job. And I was fortunate that he said, you know, why don't, why don't, why don't we grow your career here? Why don't, I, why don't I give you some of the reimbursements so there's, you know, Medicare cost reports and things, kind of setting the prices for our gross pricing. Start to do uh, risk contracts and managed care contracts. So risk contracts is where you accept insurance risk you to get okay. a premium and uh, and you have to kind of kind of project your your utilization and your pricing and you look at things of site of care and you know, there's rate differentials if you went to 
Lawrence General, for instance, versus you know a downtown Boston hospital might be more expensive. So, so I started to get into the to the reimbursement and managed care space, and I did that for a couple of years. But he told me at the time that I didn't go to Boston that he'd grow my career, and I there was some other things I did there, like we we stood up a um, a home care company. And I set up the billing systems and the intake systems because that was so I had parts of IT because I had that. We had some physician uh, practices that we were acquiring. Okay. And um, I would kind of oversee those and, and set up the systems there. And he and there was a, a director of accounting at the time would would be working on the deal and 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 I would be on on the team, but more on the periphery. But but then ultimately a lot of that owned I owned it. You owned the transaction? Not not so much the transaction, but the oversight and management of it, you know? So the transaction was probably more the CFO. Okay. And then then as they came in, although I was involved, we had had engaged uh, some accounting, some not not accounting firms, some consulting firms that would help us do the valuation. So I was involved in that. Uh, but I wasn't driving the the, uh, the transaction itself. But you, so you owned the management of the yeah. Oh, okay. So yeah. So like the people who would practices. manage the practices would report to me. Wow. And, um, so so I, I st- when we we created a uh, women's health radiology center. We had the uh, a couple of primary care practices. We had a surgery center. We had the home health. So you know, Bo- Lawrence General at the time was. Maybe 125 million. It's a smaller place compared to when I went to Partners, yeah. which was over four billion. Right. But it was great because I had kind of the revenue cycle, you know, the front, middle, back of revenue cycle, which means like you know, coding and and the registration, bidding, and the billing, and the and the and the pricing and the charge capture, uh, managed care, parts of of a health system. The practices and, and some of the ancillary outside ancillary areas and parts of IT. So you were actually so, supervising the practice managers at yeah. that point. Yeah. Wow. I also had a uh, a a, a um, what they called a prenatal clinic, which was you know it was also kind of eye opening too. It was just you got a real good view into inner city life and uh, people who struggle, yeah. and so you you I would be managing this in this. You know, it was a very altruistic uh, physician, woman, who would take care of, you know, young women who were expecting and, um, you know, trying to guide them through that kind of the, you know, it happens, you know, with with poverty and, and not being educated. And, 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 and so you, you know, so I'd learn about, you know, the reimbursement rules around delivery. You'd learn about new innovations and in contraception and things. It was kind of... So I'd figure out the uh, the reimbursement about a Norplan implant that was yeah. a long-term, you know. So I would research the reimbursement rules, set up the charges, set up the systems, and I also oversaw that clinic. So, And you also got a good lens and uh, uh, actually see the face of poverty, which was, to me... Kind of inspiring in, in a way that I was doing something f- to help some people, you know. So that was reaffirming to me. Help set up the Lawrence General Physician Hospital Organization. Yeah. yeah. What is a what is a PHO Physician Hospital well, Organization? I, you hear the saying, "If you've seen one, you've seen one," right? Okay. Uh, but it basically, a physician hospital organization is uh, fundamentally capitalized by the hospital. So there's the you know, so you're putting in money. And, and you are trying to bind independent physicians, typically in a, in a, in a um, community hospital context. They're not part of an academic medical center where they have 
they have their their offices here. They're out, you know, all over the community, Methuen, Salem, New Hampshire, Haverhill, Mass, if you're familiar with the area. And you're trying to create a contracting entity. So one is you face the payers as a collective bargaining unit almost. Okay. And the, hopefully that's enough market clout to get preferential rates. But it, the whole notion is that you're going to emphasize primary care which is still what we're after now, you know, after the Accountable Care Act. This is the 1990s. Prevention and, and ultimately take on insurance risk. In the 1990s, you didn't have electronic health records. So you went from, I'm going to get paid based upon how, what I charge, largely, to I'm going to take full insurance risk right. with no tools, and uh, you might recall the Helen Hunt movie about, you know, HMOs and like 19, so I think they used the term, that my damn HMO. They started to get disparaged because they would deny care, et cetera. And so it was before they also had quality measures in terms of immunization rates, well, busy, well baby visits, those kinds of things. So you really didn't have any measures of quality, nor did you have kind of the electronic data to really understand what kind of a population you were managing. Yeah. And, and you fast forward to today, you have electronic health records that have problem lists. So, you know, I have diabetes or I have asthma. I have these allergies. I take these drugs. And these are my recent results. So that's the provider. And that's, hopefully you share that in a network. And then you have the incidence of claims data. So you might have a diabetic, but then you look at the claims data and you say, I don't see a lot of incidents, so they must be managing their diabetes, but I have this diabetic who also has hypertension, and they're frequently in the emergency room. So you start to create care pathways in medical homes where you say, I'm going to engage this patient and help them manage their situation. So, But a, a, a physician hospital organization still persists today. It might be called an accountable care organization. And again, like I said, if you've seen one PHO, You've seen one, probably the same with an accountable care, but it's very much the same. It's, the, it's kind of the confluence of, of physicians, and sometimes it's hospitals, but sometimes it's in, like partners. They'll have the continuum of care. They have skilled nursing facilities, home health, et cetera, in their accountable care organization. But the whole notion of PHOs or IPAs and, or ACOs is, one, I, I kind of take, I'm economically integrated so that I can, I can contract as a single entity and not violate antitrust because I have enough economic or risk integration. And the other part of it is that I'm going to change the way I manage care. And that's, that's, that's the, essentially what a PHO is and an ACO is. So in 1998, you left Lawrence General after yeah. oh, about 10 years yep. and you moved to Partners Health healthcare system yep. to be the corporate director of revenue finance. So for listeners outside of New England, what is Partners? So Partners Healthcare is the is the parent of essentially the four in, uh, initial institutions with Mass General and Brigham, fairly the two big ones. And then you had Spalding, which is a rehab, and McLean, which is a psych hospital. Those were the four principles. Spalding and McLean were largely aligned with Mass General, and then Brigham over in the Longwood area of Boston, uh, where Beth Israel and others are Harvard Hospital, all Harvard hospitals, came together in 1994 to form a healthcare system. And then they started to negotiate with payers as a healthcare system, 
They had their physician organizations, you know, academic physician organizations tied to the Mass General, so the MGPO, Mass General Physician Organization, and the Brigham and Women's Physician Organization. And then they, Partners was, you know, the corporate parent, but it was also a management services organization in that they would look for, when anytime you, you merge, you look for synergies, which is efficiencies. And so what kind of leverage can we get if we get scale on back office things like accountants? Do I need a separate accounting? Or if I just say, look, if I just have a couple more accountants, I can probably pull in other uh, facilities and not have to build a whole accounting department. Similarly with you know, legal, patient accounting, billing, uh, all, all the kind of real estate facilities, those kinds of things. And that, so then partners came together and they initially kind of the degrees of integration are, well, let's leverage space. So we're going to have common space and we're going to have common management. And, but then you have disparate systems. And so you have to have somebody who knows how to enter, you know, account payable invoices into the Mass General system versus the Brigham had a homegrown system. And so over time, to try to become progressively more homogenous in your systems approach to get greater leverage and scale. And, you know, we were still on that journey when I left in, in, in 2010. But, you know, that is, you know, so, you know, partners would then say, well, Let's try to come up with corporate standards on, you know, reserve policies, for instance, or come together in terms of how we approach Blue Cross in a negotiation. What would be our objective in this negotiation? So you start to have like corporate approaches to things, corporate approaches to supply chain and vendors, corporate approaches to accounting conventions and the way you roll up your 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 P and L and your and your balance sheet. So you know, everyone has when you're in your own company, you have the discretion to make some you know, nuanced uh, approaches based upon your company. When you come together, it was kind of the uh, progressive homogeneity ad- yeah. agenda. Okay. Um, so that's really what it was. So you stepped in to manage revenue finance. What is revenue finance? That's a good question. So uh, revenue finance was really um, all things related to the top half of the P&L. So what my role was, I had, um, so Medicare and the state have uh, something called a cost report that you have to file. It was more relevant when you were reimbursed based on cost, but it still had things like organ acquisition, costs that they settle on costs, you know, residents and interns, those kinds of things are still relevant. So I oversaw the reimbursement function which is fundamentally cost reports. And they would also set prices, you know, gross prices, charges. I would oversee kind of contract modeling and support the contract function. I didn't have the contract function at Partners. I did have it at Lawrence General. But we would model the contracts, and we would model whether or not we got paid right um, from from the uh, insurers. So you would model them, and then as payments came in, you'd validate that you got paid right. Uh, all the billing functions, you know, so for Mass General, the Brigham, the Spalding, McLean, and we grew up to North Shore and Newton Wellesley and the Cape. And so start over time, you know, starting with, you know, maybe five or six entities, by the time I left, we had about 12. And so you would, you know, as you, as you brought hospitals into the corporation, you'd have to, you know, do, kind of do post-merger integration work and bring them in and, and say, this is how we know. But... Sometimes doing it with common systems, like we had a common GL, 
but many times with disparate systems because you had different revenue cycle systems. So it was your so, goal to eventually migrate everybody to yeah, the same system? Yeah, that's what system. I was doing. When you'll get to it yeah. later on the Compass project, I was yeah. working on that. Okay. So, you know, it, it, was, it was basically, you know, setting prices, reserves, meaning you might look at a hospital P&L, you'll see gross patient service revenue, less allowance for contractual allowances or allowances for, you know, doubtful accounts. So I would have to, because basically when you get to net patient service revenue, you have to, that's basically cash. You have to estimate what cash is because that's going to cover the bottom of your P&L, all your expenses. And, you know, you earn billions of dollars. If you're like, well, on a billion dollars here, you're off 1%. That's $10 million, right? So you just off a little bit. Um, That's a lot of jobs. It's a lot of jobs. (laughs) And so I remember my boss, Peter Markell, at the time said, you know, Rich, I don't want you to be, I don't want you to be overly conservative because that's jobs. And I don't want you to be overly aggressive because when we overstate income, just be right. And it's kind of amusing, but it's, but he's right. And so you, but you had a lot of complicated, uh, because you'd have deductions would be denied claims because you didn't get an authorization referral. You'd have a a bad debt, either on a pure self-pay or a deductible after insurance. You have contractual allowances, so you have to kind of estimate. And you have DRGs and bundles, and, and sometimes the payers would say, well, this is a coding. I'm going to bundle these things together. And so you're, you're doing the best you can. Is you, It's not like you're running a sales tape at a cash register and say that was your sales for the day. You're estimating revenue. So really, I would... Take the from the P and L perspective, take gross to net, and then put the reserves on the balance sheet, and and then offset the the losses as they came through. So that was probably the biggest part of my job, the the reimbursement, and then uh, all the transact the contract modeling, and then we also at the time when I first started there, did a lot of research. We did the um, indirect cost recoveries and and fringe recoveries to support a really a, a fantastic research enterprise at Partners. So. You came from Lawrence, which you said, I believe, mm-hmm. was 125 million in revenues, yeah. to Partners, which was... It was over $4 billion when I started. When I left, it was almost nine. So what was that like? So it was a, I mean, I'll, I'll tell you, I was a VP. So I was a big fish at a small pond. And then, so, uh, you know, I had... At Lawrence. The, yeah. At Lawrence, yes, at Lawrence. Thank you. And then when I went to Partners, it wasn't a VP role, but it was a corporate director role. So I was... You know, I think probably from a responsibility, I probably had more responsibility than at Lawrence. But that, yeah, I got to admit, you know, it, it was always hard kind of maybe psychologically for lack of a better characterization for me to kind of get my head around it. But because, you know, I, I, I scraped and clawed. I got to a VP by times 36 at, uh, at Lawrence and you know, I was 38 here and corporate director. But the, the work was, and it was narrower. I had, you know, IPA, PHO, I had uh, those satellite uh, entities. I had the OB clinic. I had parts of IT. I had, I mean, I had wore a thousand hats. Yeah. And that's probably why I was able to go into, into, into from a small place to that place is because I, had, I, I knew how healthcare worked. When you come into like a place like Partners, I can't imagine being an analyst coming into Partners in revenue finance. How does healthcare work? You know, you're in Charlestown in a cube. You're not in the, and so I had was fortunate enough to start at a small place in a role where I saw how it worked. Yeah. And, I mean, and you then, were, you, throughout your career, you were kind of very much in the, in the weeds. I, I mean, right all the way always, to, always. from the beginning. From yeah. the beginning. It gives you a good yeah, sense so of how the, the business yeah, works. How it works. Yeah. And I was, you know, it was great training. 
and I don't know if I had worked uh, at a at a small place like Lawrence General and had a smaller role, whether I would be able to position. And I'll tell you how I got the partner's job. I I spoke at uh, an HFMA. So I, I one of the things you you know you want to be in your career, get active in your professional organizations because. You never know, and uh, and like I said, I, I enjoy teaching. I had a teaching certificate. I, I I did so. I they would ask me to speak, and I'd like it, and I'd do it. And um, so after that, you know, one of one of the people in the crowd said, "Who's that guy?" And um, I got a call from Partners. Wow. Okay. And uh, I, I so that was you know was a, that person talked to one person who called. Partners, so it was all because I was related. I was involved in HFMA, so you never know what's going to happen. And that I stayed there over ten years, so it was it was it was a little disorienting to you know have such a large swath of function of of responsibility to go a very deep and narrower. But it, but it was very challenging. The thing that it was probably different immediately, and I said this to one of my colleagues, and he laughed. But I, I, I said to him one day, I said, I never work so hard to accomplish so little. <laughs> and, uh, and he laughed. And, and, and I said, well, you know, I'm so used to being able to go into at Lawrence and, and make a couple of changes and you could see the system worked or whatever. You, it's like you, you're turning a PT boat. Right. And, and here I had to learn that you had to talk. There were so many constituents to consider. And so I was in a small pond. I didn't, you know, you're moving a, you know, a, probably a, a couple of battleships. Right. And, and um, you had to talk about the approach to work more than doing the work almost. You know, how do you want to approach it? Are you aligned with how we approach it? And then do it. And that's why one of my earlier revelations is, you know, really an influence model because you had local finance departments um, I reported to the system CFO, who all the CFOs of of all of the hospitals reported to that CFO as well as to their local board and local CEO. So they all had their okay. local finance committees. So I had one boss, but I had to quickly realize that I had eight or nine bosses because in some ways I'd be saying, look at I want to set the reserve policies this way. And so many ways I would have to do that for my boss, the corporate person who wanted to set corporate policy, but at the same time have to turn to the people I was setting policy and say, how's the service in terms of your cost reports and everything else? So you had to, it was almost a situational hierarchy. Yeah, but I was, I was, the style that I took was just to ask questions, uh, acknowledge if the, you know, I'm, I'm uncomfortable about this. And what you find is that, you know, people are uncomfortable if they're just not aware of what's going on. It's so much activity. I'm, I'm busy on other things. And so you had to really learn on, I had to learn to really up my game on checking in on people, listening, which I wasn't always really good at. I had to learn to do that better. Because my mind kind of goes fast and I would, people would call me a box jumper. I'd know where you were going and I'd be talking where they were going. And they were like, what are you talking about? Yeah. And, you know, I'm talking about Z. Well, I'm still at B. Yeah, but you're going here. It was somewhat, you know, and so I learned a lot of that about my the way my brain works and the way others work. So some people are more sequential thinkers and I, I could kind of know where you're going and I'll start talking about where you're going and they're not with you. So it was from a... Um, from a complexity and kind of being more self-aware of like your, the way your brain works and others and trying to work in a large organization 
and, and, and celebrating victories that are maybe smaller in terms of what you did, but who you did it with was much bigger. And you had to calibrate that quite a bit. And it's a complicated organization. You've got the corporate structure and its kind of ecosystem in politics. You've got each of those entities with their own medical staff and they're proud and they're great organizations and, and, and their kind of local flora and fauna. You've got the medical, you've got the medical school, Harvard. Yeah. You've got the research enterprise, the teaching enterprise. Fascinating kind of organization to, to try to uh, figure out how to navigate in. So you also held simultaneously for a period of years executive director of the Compass program, which you kind of alluded to a minute ago. What was that? So, so I described earlier that they were all on separate information systems. And in this case, it was more the patient administrative system. So when you go to the doctor and they, or you go to the hospital, and they ask you where you live and what's your insurance, you can see them typing in and that's a registration system. Tied to that is you know, where they enter your diagnosis and where they enter the charges like the x-ray and the complete blood count, et cetera. And then that uh, ultimately goes out as a claim to the insurance. And then once the insurance pays, it goes out as a statement to you for the 20 or 50 or $100, whatever you owe after the insurance pays. They were all on separate systems, all had separate processes, and the physicians had their own systems. And we were looking to kind of, and oh, by the way, physician compensation is tied to how much they collect, right? So you're trying to, you're taking a lot of organizational change risk in that let's, we all do it and we all might do it well, but we all do it differently. So it's not like when you come to a, if you went to a Ritz-Carlton, you kind of expect what to expect at a Ritz-Carlton. You come to partners, they're you know, great organizations, but they all approached it slightly differently. And so can we have a consistent patient experience and a consistent you know, system? It wasn't just a system, it's kind of people, in terms of what you do, the process, how you do it, and, and technology, what you do it with, right? And so that was what we were doing, and, and you're dealing with, you know, well, I've always done it this way, et cetera. Yeah. So I was trying to drive, um, you know, an initiative to kind of re-engineer and hopefully ultimately simplify. That was the aspiration at the time, a rather complex and arcane um, revenue cycle process. And any of you have been had to deal with a billing issue and calling, you know, a hospital, whatever, it's generally less than satisfactory in terms of trying to figure yeah. that out, yeah. you know, because it's, it's complicated. And so we worked on that. We spent a lot of years just even looking at the technology. And I you know, learned a lot about technology. We had a great CIO, John Glasser, who was a thought leader and um, learned a lot from him. And then we actually started to do the work. Uh, what, what, when we, when we uh, made the decision on the system, it was a Siemens product that they acquired a company in, in Pennsylvania. And the uh, buzzword was, you know, services-oriented architecture, which means... It's open technology. It's almost like you have the internet, and these technologies would have would would consume rules from a payer system. So if you had a rule on, if Rich Silvera goes to his PCP, doesn't need a referral. No, because that's his PCP. If Rich Silvera goes to this hospital, are they in network or out of network? So you would initialize the the question. So and it would expose the the it would it would basically the payer would expose the rules and you'd consume them and it would be as transformational as the internet itself. You didn't have to build all the rules in your yeah. system. That was the vision. 
and we went with this new Siemens project. So you know, we were taking, when I think about it, we were taking the, the, the business interruption risk because billing and collections is complicated and you might read in the paper every now and then a hospital's having problems because they went through a system conversion. You take on the cultural kind of risk in terms of you know just, just resistance to change is kind of human nature. But we were also taking the technology risk. So we were swinging from the fence. <laughs> and, the, and, the, and, the, and the thought was, was, well, they're a $90 billion company. They've done five years of this. Let's let's give it a, let's give it a, let's see if we can leapfrog technologies because most systems in healthcare have their genesis in the '60s and '70s, and that's still true. Um, so ultimately, uh, we got I, I I I worked on that actually part time from 2002. We launched that program, and I think I signed the contract. It was a great experience. I signed the Siemens kind of. We had a co-development IP contract, a system implementation kind of business partner Accenture contract. At the time, it was like a $265 million deal that I put together, which was a great experience for me. And then we got it live at uh, Newton Wellesley, and that's where that ended. But, it, but just think about like trying to, uh, what we did is we got a bunch of executives together and say, is this worth it? Do we want to, do we want to transform ourselves? At the time, we were losing money to bad debts and denials, and if we did it better, we could. So there was a business case. So we do whiteboard and visioning sessions, and then, and then in terms of coming up with the corporate model, bringing people from Mass General, Brigham, North Shore, and trying to get perspectives on people and aligning on an approach. So it was, um, it was probably one of the more challenging, but it was a lot of, a, a lot of experience in terms of trying to make sure you're listening and aligning people. And being self-aware enough that you're, you know, am I tired? Am I tuning out? Am I, you know, and, and to me, that's kind of the key thing that I probably learned at Partners is, I mean, I, I always was self-aware, but I actually focused on it more and, and making sure that I managed myself so that I was receptive because you got all these people coming at you with all these perspectives. It's easy, you know, to get frustrated. But to try to thread the needle and get people to align on things. And, you know, you, you never quite completely align. There's always nuance or someone won't say what they really mean and they leave. And then later on, you find out they don't with you. It was a great change management project. We got the system technology up and running. At the end, though, after I left, that, that, that was still, I think it's still a great concept, but it, it, it couldn't scale to partners. And uh, oh. so partners actually pivoted towards Epic, okay. which was what we're implementing now. But it was a Siemens Saurian product, which is still out there. Still a great vision, but it hasn't really quite been able to pull the vision off yet. So a lot of kind of organizational change lessons from that. So yeah, this was I mean, not just revenue. Yeah, so I built, I built a, a business whole. case. I did the contracts. I, you know, I, I, I kind of did a vision. I did an alignment. And it was really, a, it was almost like a startup company, you know. Wow. Um, but uh, and, and at the time... Uh, an $8 billion company when I was doing that, yeah. <laughs> so after 12 years at Partners in 2010, you came here to Boston Medical Center, where we, where we are today, mm -hmm. uh, to be the Senior Vice President for Finance and the System CFO. Yeah. Uh, before we talk specifically about your role, yeah. tell me a little bit about Boston Medical Center. Well, Boston Medical Center is, it's hard not to feel good about what Boston Medical Center does. It's the, um, the largest safety net hospital in New England. You know, we serve the most, you know, the, the, the underserved, you know, the people who are most vulnerable. 
And that's a, that's a noble mission. So, you know, you, anytime you, you know, it's workers call work for a reason, you know, you, you work hard and sometimes you, you have days where you come out and you say that was a you know, great day and I, that was a great puzzle. And some days you're just gassed. Um, you're tired, but when you think about what you do here and what you're doing for society, it, it gives you a lift. So, you know, it's a, it's the largest trauma center, the largest safety net. We have uh, 13 health centers. Uh, we have the largest interpretive services in New England. 30% of our patients don't speak English. More than half of them are uh, at pov- poverty. They're low income. We are 80% public payer, either Medicare, Medicaid, or we have a food pantry. We teach people how to cook. We have access to, you know, it's more than an academic medical center. You're, 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 you have an acute illness, we make you better. We deal with really, you know, in terms of Maslow's hierarchy of needs, really the basic human needs, food, shelter. We give prescriptions for, for, for food, for kids who are failure to thrive, who have cognitive issues because of that. And we see them come along as, you know, when you talk to the clinicians here, they're zealots about it. They're so impassioned about it. So... It's a special place. It really is. It's, I mean, like anything, it's 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 complicated. It's it, we are the teaching hospital for BU, so it's 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 not partners, but it's 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 got the complexities of partners. We have about a hundred million of of research. About two thirds of that is NIH. We we uh, have uh, almost nine hundred um, faculty. So there are physicians, but they're also faculty to BU. So yeah, so the hospital is about a billion dollars. The faculty practice plan is about $300, $325 million. And we have a health plan with 300,000 members, about 75,000 of them are in New Hampshire. The balance of them are in Massachusetts, about 200,000 in MassHealth. And the balance of them are, are in um, the connector products. But they're also largely you know, indigent patients. And that is a, uh, you know, a $1.7, $1.8 billion. So altogether, about a you know, when you, in the accounting parlance, you eliminate revenues and expenses between each other. You know, we're about a $2.9 billion company. So, you know, third largest, once Leahy and BI uh, come together, I think they'll be third, but we're the third largest system in the state. So, Boston Medical Center began as Boston City Hospital. Mm-hmm. Um, just curious, when did it move from a municipal to a... So, so it was a... So it was, was a, kind of in the backdrop of partners coming together uh-huh. in 1994. Mayor Menino at the time had envisioned uh, you know, a merger of Boston City Hospital with University Hospital, which was the teaching hospital for Boston University. And that was completed in 1996. So just 20 years ago last year, we had our 20th anniversary. So it was... Uh, you know, the first CEO, Elaine Yulian, I give her a ton of credit to pull it off. You have a, basically a city hospital uh, with an academic medical center and uh, kind of grafting those two missions together. Now, they did already have a lot of kind of cross-pollination between, because they're so close, they're just a block apart. And Boston City, I'm told, we didn't work here, that it was a great place to learn to be a doctor. So at one time, Boston City had over 2,000 beds. It had a teaching relationship with Tufts, Harvard, and BU. You know, you fast forward later. I don't know when that stopped, but you know, you know we're the teaching hospital uh, for BU. So it was kind of in the same kind of context. Can you get scale? You know, in terms of back off office functions and and negotiations with both suppliers and uh, payers. Can you have more access to capital? 
and uh, more access to network and covered lives. That's really the three fundamental reasons is consolidation in my mind is, you know, scale in all contexts. It's a capital and labor intensive business. You need capital. And ultimately, your network can cover lies, whether you're going to fulfill a fee-for-service mission or you're going to have enough top-line revenue in terms of premiums collected. So you mentioned you have a you have a network, Boston. It's referred to as Boston Health Net. Yes. And are these uh, entities, you said 13 community health centers, are these entities part of BMC? Or are they, how, how does the we, affiliation work? So we have, they're not corporately part of BMC. Uh, we have some... Uh, unique relationships with some of them that I'll describe in a moment if I don't confuse you too much by it. But So we have 13 members. Some of them are primary partners and secondary partners. And so we have different kind of gradations of relationships. And, you know, and some of those relationships come with support from us. The community health centers are also financially vulnerable, like a city hospital. They rely on the government. And to be a federally qualified health center and uh, to get those government payments, they, by by law, have to remain independent. So we we, we work with them. We have like a uh, we we do some direct support and and uh, we work with them. Put out specialists or primary care or family practice practitioners out there, and when they need acute care, they come here. You know, we have a van that will shuttle them around the city. We have installed information systems. We just installed a web version of Epic into those health centers to give them access to health records, but also to try to manage that care within a system and have Epic be the electronic backbone upon which we execute a number of strategies. One of them would be population health. And again, if you're sharing information on problem lists, allergies, you know, drugs that they're on, recent results, that's all part of the ecosystem. So you know, it's a, uh, we, we, about a third of our, our volume comes from our health center partnerships. We have an awful lot of, uh, because we're a trauma center, a lot of emergency room visits. We're the largest emergency room in New England, largest and busiest. In New England? In New England. Wow, okay. You know, 130 roughly every year, 130,000 visits. So it, it, that's kind of probably the legacy of being City Hospital. But those those relationships are very important to us. And as the state starts to pivot towards a population health framework where uh, they want to move from every time you do a service, I pay you, called fee-for-service, and they want to put people on what we talked about in the PHO context, I'm going to pay you a budget, a premium, and you're going to live within that premium. And so we are actively working with the state as well as our health centers to say, well, how would we prepare for that? And Because they, they, they manage those lives out there. So part of it is let's have a system yeah. and let's start having, you know, infrastructure like increased behavioral health. Many times much of the utilization is because of behavioral health and psych issues or substance abuse. Making investments in, in, in uh, patient navigators so they know how to find their way around the system. So those are all things that we're doing to get ready for uh, population health for the state because, this, you know, the, the state right now has about 28% of its population on Medicaid. And it's, okay. it's heading towards you know 33%. So I don't think when we envisioned healthcare reform that a third of the state would be on Medicaid, but that is, it's unsustainable. It's 40% of the budget. It does get matched, so 20% state money, 20% federal money, but that's still a big chunk, and it's crowding out other things. So we're actively working with the state and our CHC's constituents to try to deal with that societal issue right now. 
So you, and you also mentioned BMC HealthNet plan. Um, yes. And, and you said that you have beneficiaries who are in New Hampshire. Yes. Yeah, so we have Boston um, Medical Center HealthNet plan was initially the Massachusetts rendition of, of, um, of a, what they call an MCO, a Medicaid, care, Medicaid managed care organization. And they started in a waiver, a Medicaid waiver that we filed to, to not follow all of the federal Medicaid rules, so you're away from that. In 1997, we formed that health plan. It was largely a Medicaid health plan. When Governor Romney passed health care reform in 2006, we did the Massachusetts version of the exchange products, Connector. Um, we had as much as 60,000 members in there. And then in 20, I think, 14... I got the date right. That's when you move to the federal qualified, quali- uh, the qualified health plan, which is the federal. And we, you know, we've been growing. I think we're all around 60,000 again there. In about 2012, we entered New Hampshire because New Hampshire wanted to do um, managed Medicaid. We thought that they were adjacent. And uh, let's get some geographic diversification and not have all of your risk concentrated in one state and one product. And so we've been successful. We got the contract. We have about 75,000 members there. And we call ourselves WellSense in okay. New Hampshire. Okay. Yeah. I'm familiar with that product. All right. Yeah. So you are the CFO. Yes. Where do you fit into the organization of BMC? Who are your, kinda, who, who, who are your colleagues at your level? So I report to the CEO, Kate Walsh, who I, I knew at uh, Partners. She was a COO uh, at the Brigham, and she was also a VP at Mass General when I first started there. Who re- she reports to the chairman of the board. So, and then I'm also accountable. I have four committees that I run. Finance Committee for the Health System, with FPF, Health Plan Hospital, oversee all three. And uh, the investment committee and the audit committee. My colleagues are the other VPs, you know, with the chief operating officer, the chief nursing officer, chief uh, uh, HR. So we have the, Kate has about six or seven VPs that report directly to her. And how do you how do you interact? Where the where do the lines get drawn between you and say the COO? Or well, the COO uh, he's also our strategy officer. Um, I would say that he is coming up with what we should do in terms of the strategy. He's also trying to drive performance in terms of the operations. So in terms of the strategy, he comes up with the strategy, and then what I try to do is get the organization to perform at the level that we can fund that strategy, whether it be acquisition of buildings. So I try to get the balance sheet in shape to to have enough capacity to buy a building or implement a computer system or whatever our tactics and strategies are. So in many ways, you have a long-term vision, and then you have kind of a strategic plan, which might be like three to five years. And then the budget, if you're doing it right, should be a one-year one slice of what you're trying to achieve in your broader vision and your strategy. It's never that clean. Because lots of times you look at, you know, the state cuts money and you're like, I got to cut, I got to get the budget in balance and everyone's running around with their hair on fire. And it's, we do that every summer because our fiscal year begins uh, October 1. And it happens more here than maybe at Partners because we are dealing with, you know, the state and the state really can't afford expansion. But, but he, you know, I would say Alistair is, you know, we get the budgets, we agree on what our, our objectives are. And then Alistair this is the COO, Alistair Bell, he's a physician. He drives the organization to achieve that. And I kind of keep score in terms of 
you know, how do we do month to date, year to date, according to plan, make sure the audit financials are clean and I don't overstate income or anything like that. So the hygiene of it, but then also looking at, look at if you want to get that building, like I said earlier, healthcare is both labor and capital intensive. Well, then I need to be able to throw dollars onto the balance sheet. So I have to have a certain income target so that I can accumulate enough retained earnings so that I have money in the bank and then also debt capacity to be able to go out to the market and float some bonds. And so, you know, basically the sources of income are your operations and your investment income. Philanthropy, which is different, and, you know, you can get that, your debt market. Sometimes you can monetize assets to, to get it. But basically, you know, it's operating income, investment income, philanthropy, and debt. And then occasionally, said so that I basically uh, set up a framework where you say, look at health plan, you have to perform here. Hospital, you have to plan here. Physician organization, you basically have to live within the envelope. They break even because they typically pay that on this comp. They don't have a, a balance sheet. And then look at the combined cash flows and income and say, okay, this is, so I try to say, if you perform at this level, this is your optionality. If you perform at this level, this is your optionality. And so if you perform here, this is how much cash you have. What are you going to, what is your strategic priority with that cash? Is kind of how we lay that out. What, who reports to you? What, what functions uh, support your effort? So I kind of have the traditional, um, I, so I have the managed care finance, which negotiates the contracts. And that's kind of a group project because we have an ACO director and we have other constituents that, you know, we have the, the health plan, et cetera. I, the, the, the health plan CFO has some accountability to me, as I mentioned, because in, the, in the, the framework, although that person reports like in partners to their CEO, Similarly, for the Faculty Practice Foundation, the, the finance lead reports to me as well as to that CEO. So kind of functional leads, okay. uh, or organizational leads, I should say. And functionally, I have treasury, accounting, reimbursements, budgets, supply chain. I'll probably, I said managed care. I have a chief of staff that helps me. I'll probably miss it. I said reimbursement. So I have about 10 or 11 direct reports. Our financial systems area. When you arrived in 2010, yeah. BMC was, was struggling. Yeah. Um, you had significant losses projected. What was your role in the financial turnaround? So, you know, a part of a team, right? So you don't, you don't do anything on your own. I would say, you know, when I looked at this opportunity, and I, Kay told me at the time, you know, in the summer, I, I started here again in the end of 2010. In the summer, we started talking early in the summer, and then we, I finally accepted the job in October and started in December. But at the time, she said you might lose 177 million on a billion, and it was because the way that these safety net hospitals, Cambridge also, Cambridge Health Alliance, and then BMC were funded through supplemental dollars. And so the theory was that well, look at now we have universal coverage; everyone has insurance. You don't need those supplemental dollars anymore. What's a supplemental dollar? So a supplemental dollar would be like a uh, like almost like a grant from the from the government to make up for the shortfalls because typically the way the ecosystem, the financial ecosystem works in healthcare is public payers pay below cost. Medicare is closer to cost than Medicaid, at least in Massachusetts and in most states. So Medicare might be 95% of the cost dollar and Medicaid might be 65, 72 cents in that range. So you can't make it. So and you're, if spending we have a do- you're spending a dollar and yeah. you're getting 68 60 cents back, back in compensation. And okay. most, the ecosystem in most places is Blue Cross, Aetna, Cigna, 
pay you enough margin you know, to cross-subsidize that. In the parlance of healthcare, many times they say cost shift. I, I prefer cross-subsidize because I think it's more intuitive. But that's how it works. But we have 80% either, you know, 44% Medicaid, 32% Medicare, self-pay free care pool HSM, which is somewhat reimbursed from the pool. But 80%, you can't on 20% have enough cross-subsidy. And we don't have the negotiation clout to even get good rates. So that's why you get a subsidy. So when I came in here, um, you know, I'd never been a CFO before. So kind of like, am I ready for another rodeo like Lawrence? Um, because Lawrence was, so I, I, I was intrigued with you know, the mission. I thought it was noble. I, I, I really enjoyed my time. The people at Partners are great people, really smart people, fine organization. But I got to have my own investment committee my own audit committee, my own finance committee, my own team, and can I turn it around? Yeah. And so when I got in here, we had FTI in here, which is like a turnaround company, and they at least had the playbook. I took the job in October thinking that it's October. Of course they passed their budget. So I took it. I said, look at it. I, I wouldn't mind going to a finance committee before I start in, in, in December. Can I, can I come? And they said, sure, you know. So I show up and they're passing their budget, the effective 10-1 in, in, in November. And I subsequently found out that that was because, you know, Ted Kennedy, you know, God bless him, would occasionally get down there and find other subsidy money so you could make the budget. So they didn't work. The culture here was like God will provide. And, but that, that framework had changed. Now it was really, you had a, you had some subsidy, but you had a bill and collect like everybody else. Yeah. And, and so I, uh, I got there and they passed a budget for a $47 million loss. I thought, you know, so over the summer, they acquired 90 million of supplemental money and we had to kind of make up the other, you know, the rest of it and through either reductions or top line growth. And we did over time, but we weren't there quite at that time. So we had passed a budget for 47 million, which included 32 million of improvements that FTI was gonna to try to get during the year. So you had a lot of execution risk. And 47 million was 15 million more than I could lose and not trip my bond covenants. Okay. So your bond covenants typically work at your maximum allowable debt, maximum uh, annual debt service. So the highest payment in your mortgage, if you will, right? right. And you have to have free cash, which is, you know, your your operating income plus depreciation and amortization has to be 110% of that maximum payment. I had to improve performance on top of the 32 that FDI by 15 to not trip my bonds. It's not that we would be bankrupt, but you'd lose control because your bond, then you have consultants no. come in and they take over. So, so what, if you trip your bond covenants, you. You lose. So in the parlance of, of the, the bond board. council, they call uh -huh. it the zone of insolvency. Okay. It, but it wasn't that we, we had a balance sheet. And I would tell Kate, look, it's not like we're not going to be in a payroll. We're just not going to be leading this, you and I. We're <laughs> going to have consultants leading, right? Because the bondholders want to be represented. Right. And uh, so, you know, what I did then is I, I just tried to, I got in here so that I just got to try to win every day. I mean, I'm just, I can't think about the whole elephant. I got to just one bite at a time. And that's what, what I did. I had a similar approach that I had when I was, you know, in my 20s, although it was a bigger job. It's just like try to think about what's the most impactful, critical thing 
Focus on your relationships. It's a team sport. Try to get people to focus on it. Now, I, you know, you come in here and it's kind of a scorched earth culture. We've had people laid off. Morale's not great. They didn't love FTI. Uh, people were fighting with FTI. I said, look, it, we want them to win. In fact, we want them to win even more than the 31 million. So I had to kind of get people kind of emotionally back because they felt like they've been just put upon and, you know, reorganized and, and everything else. So, so we had, we had, you know, we had targets. We looked at, you know, things in accounts receivable, payer contracting rates, supply chain, labor. More than 60% of your business is labor. So really managing labor and flexing your budgets and, and vacancies, you know, trying to, if you can kind of kick the can on hiring and, and, and get by. And, and we, we, you know, Kate Walsh's term, you know, we grinded out yardage. And instead of losing 47, I, I think we lost 34. Yeah, or 32. That was, you know, fiscal year 2011. Yeah. And uh, and then, you know, by fiscal year uh, 2012, we had a $800 operating gain. $800 on a billion. Okay. (laughs) That's a thin margin. (laughs) It's a very thin margin. Yeah, you wouldn't wouldn't say have venture capitalists come in here and say, I want to put billions of dollars in this bricks and mortar, and I hope it throws off 800 bucks a year. But that's the difference about, you know, that's that's healthcare mission, and that's city hospital kind of, you know, you're doing God's work. So you would never build this place based on a return on assets. But anyway, so, you know, and we've been in the black ever since. So okay. it's, uh, I'm not telling you it's easy. Um, you, you can never let your guard down here and you're always looking at the next, because it's really, you know, as you expand coverage, it's really the affordability. I mean, we, I think we figured out how to give people insurance. I don't think we figured out how to afford it. Yeah. Um, and, and because, and we're in the, and we're in the uh, riptide on that because we've got so many subsidized patients. So what's a day in the life of Rich Silveria like these days? You know, what, what kind of consumes most of your time? So I was thinking about that because I saw your questions earlier. So I'll just tell you what I'm working on now. So we finished the EPIC clinical system implementation. We did that in two tranches. We did inpatient largely and then outpatient. We finished that in 2015. We took a year kind of to optimize it. Now I'm looking at revenue cycle. So registration, scheduling, charge capture, billing for the hospital physicians and everything, research, clinical studies. In the middle of that project, that's a $66 million project. So I, I'm the executive sponsor of that. Major transformation, major process change, governance, et cetera. So, you know, back in, back in the saddle on that. I mean, the, probably going to be going into the bond market. This will be the fifth time I'm in the bond market because we're looking at some potential investments to continue grow growth, so that's a fair amount of work. You have to, you know, meet. You have to use bond counsel. You have to write uh, what they call an appendix A, which kind of lays out your organization, its leadership team, its kind of its market share, its strategies, etc. Meet with the rating agencies like Moody's and Standard and Poor's and investors. So that's a major endeavor. We're changing uh, in supply chain. We're changing our distributor. The truck that backs up. Yeah. So you have to get new SKUs, new, all, all that, you know, power levels. So we're in the middle of that. That will go live in April. I'm in the planning stages of a major upgrade for our GL account. It's awesome. And uh, that's basically a rewrite of the operating system, a database restructuring, and application. So it's like almost a reinstall. So that's coming. Uh, we're doing a BI tool for revenue cycle. 
trying to get more data cubes and BI uh, and pushing analytics out to the front desk in terms of cash collections and denials, et cetera. So it's a web-based tool. And uh, and then there's just the kind of the day-to-day. I've got running payroll and AP, and and there's just a lot going on here. Um, the other, probably the you know biggest omission I had is we're getting ready for population health for our for forty-four percent of our business, Medicaid. So like, what's the what's the funds flow process for that? How do I have enough risk-based capital to assume risk? The other thing that's going on is I every year I have a cadence of I do a multi-year. Um, I think I described it somewhat earlier. I do like a three-year projection. It's hard. I used to do, we used to do it five in partners, but with the vagaries of the public uh, funding, I, I think after three years, it's really hard to anticipate what's going to happen in five. So we do it in three. And so we forecast it for the, the health plan, the, uh, the, the faculty practice plan of the hospital, get the earnings targets, look at the balance sheet, and say, how much can I go to prepare for the board to say, do we make these investments or not? So that's like, it's, it's a lot going on. I could go on, but that's yeah, kind of what's going lot. on. It is a lot. Yeah. <laughs> so as the CFO of a nearly $3 billion health facility, what what, what keeps you up at night what, when you're laying in bed, staring at the ceiling, and you're thinking about work? What is, what is it that's running through your head? I, that's a few things. I, I guess, uh, you know, one is just, just a lot going on. And, and do you, you know, are you, it's almost like, you know, the, the magic trick where you're spinning the plates and, you know, you, you know you, you're on that one or is it starting to wobble? So it's just trying to keep all the balls in the air or the plates spinning, whatever, you know, metaphor you want to use. So there's some of that. There's a lot of, ex- is it, you, if the healthcare is at a time of great change as you move from uh, fee-for-service to, you know, accountable care. So th- that's that's probably, you know, much of it but then it really is you know it's the as i mentioned it's capital and labor intensive and you know will we have enough scale as bmc even though we're three billion will we have enough scale as the market continues to consolidate you've got beth israel and Leahy now and you've got partners and you you know you're doing arguably god's work here but we're a single provider play what's the future for a single provider safety in a hospital and it's not that I think that everyone in this city wants to see us succeed because we play such an important role for this ecosystem in the city. But on the other hand, it's not like we're actively being pursued in any type of M&A context, you know, merger and acquisition, because of the vulnerability that we present to anybody who would the state or the federal government walk away from their, you know, their supplemental payments and say, well, now that's partner's problem. Partner's probably too big now to acquire us anyways. But so that's part of it. But earlier I said a third of the population is in Medicaid. So we're not a marginal player here. But it's not the book of business that is going to be able to keep you clinically relevant and be able to innovate with that kind of payer mix. So it's it's a complicated time. I think we're I think we're as well positioned as anybody because we have both the financing and the delivery to be able to assume risk. We have a health plan with risk-based capital in. And we have a local ecosystem here. So in this section of the world, and then we start to use our health plan to gain scale and lives with this network. So it's not the typical M&A, I'm going to buy a bunch of hospitals to get enough lives. It's more a contractual network. So that's an avenue for us. But, uh, you know, th- th- there's a lot going on. You've got a new president, too, who, you know, may, may repeal and replace. Certainly says it. Uh, the AC, what does that mean? So there's a lots of lots of uncertainty. I guess that's probably in a word 
what keeps almost probably anybody awake in healthcare is uncertainty. Okay. So, kind of reflecting on your career a bit, were you ever tempted to take your finance skills and jump out of out of healthcare into something completely different? It, you know, I, I, I've thought about it, but that's about as far as I ever got. Yeah, okay. You know, I've, I, okay. I've, um, I thought of many times, like I've done so much systems work, and I was at one time, well, my skills are gone uh, co- compared to what people are writing in Java and C++, and I was in, you know, Pascal and, you know, COBOL and uh, really ancient languages. But could I, could I create a tool that would be, you know, relevant that I could sell, or would I work for an IT firm? Every now and then I think of that. I've also thought about you know consulting potentially because yeah. I like to teach and I like to I like to think about what 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 are the thought leaders doing and and try to keep yourself fresh. But yeah, not not really seriously. Uh, yeah. I would say. How has healthcare finance evolved over your career? How is it different today than it was back when you started? Yeah, One of the most significant. Yeah, aspects. I would say that I think. You know, finance was kind of a back office function. Just close the books. Uh, you know, stay in the basement of the place and and uh, let me know how we did. And I think some of it's still that, but I think what 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 uh, healthcare providers are looking for now is somebody who can actually think, not about just the regulatory framework, cost reports or accounting rules, but Help me think through the business implications of these strategic decisions. Yeah. And, and can you be a strategic partner with me? So it's much more strategic than it I was. would say it is. It is. And it's increasingly becoming that. And I can't say that in every context because every CEO has their own style. Okay. But uh, it's definitely more strategic than it's been in the past. It can be a lonely job, too, though. I will just, you know, there's people going, you know, you, you, it's hard to drive change and be loved sometimes when you try and turn a place around. And when you have a budget crisis and you're talking about it, it's like, you know, you end up kind of chicken little, right? You know, yeah. the sky is falling and, and you always, it's, it's not always the most inspirational speech you have to give. But, you know, all you can do is just try to guide the organization and, uh, and be respected for what you do. But it's, it's, it's not always, you know, as you get into it, you have to think that part of it through. And you don't really get that until you really get to the top and you start to see what that life is like when you're trying to work with your colleagues who are very bright, many of them brilliant people. You, yeah. don't, you don't come up with bad ideas from VPs. The problem is, is you don't either have the bandwidth or the resources to execute them on. And then you have to decide, well, what, what, what are my priorities? And that's always a negotiation. And, and, and it can be, you know, it can be rubs. I, actually, that ties into kind of my next question for you, which was, what do most people within healthcare but outside of finance not understand about finance. I mean, what do you find yourself educating your VPs out there about yeah, most I th- often? I, I think in some cases they will, not all of them are they're not all quantitative, and sometimes they don't really understand the value of it. Or they might have a, a notion that you're here to just cut my budget, or you're just a harsh person and always yeah. negative. And um, and you're not really here to help me. You're just a bean counter. You're just you might, a you bean counter. Your you're just a bean <laughs> counter, or here you are, you know, doom and gloom again. And then lo and behold, we're fine by the end of the year. And sometimes, you know, that happens. But you see the storm clouds. It doesn't always rain. But no, I think that I think it's that 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 you can actually think on an operational level. That you can think on a strategic level. That you're not just one or two dimensional individual. That I'm a leader. But I just happen to be focused in finance, and that's where I am. And that's what you hopefully convey. 
and um, you know, and that, and that you can think outside of you know, just like it's too risky. We're just going to say no because no is the safest thing. Can you also say yes? Yeah. And I think that's what you have to kind of convey to people that you are willing to, and that you're actually in a business that has a mission that isn't always uh, a 15 or 20% EBITDA. Uh, you know, it, it, you're going to have to have, but you have to have a portfolio of mission, which might be break even or losers, with some things that are accretive to your mission in terms of financing so that it all hangs together. And, um, you know, people want what they want. Yeah. And, and, and sometimes you just have to figure out, well, how can, you know, I try to tell, I talk to people like, what's important to you? Well, let me tell you what's important to me. And let's see if we can't find some common ground. I'd like to transition and ask you a few questions about leadership. You, you've, you've told me a little bit about kind of your style already, but I wanted to ask you, could you encapsulate your leadership philosophy? What, what would that be? I believe in leveraging the collective wisdom of people around you. To me, I love to learn. I love to be asked. I am energized with learning. I love to learn. And I love to surround myself with people who love to learn. And it's really, if you're going to have somebody who hoards information or whatever, that doesn't really fit with me. So I find I get energy that way. I find the people who I like to surround myself get energy that way. And you're constantly thinking. And you're always like, you might have a notion of how you're going to do something. And then you're like, oh, that was a nugget. I'm going to incorporate that slightly into my approach and make it even better. So I would say kind of democracy in the in the generation of solutions and ideas, but not necessarily always in decision-making because I have to make the decision ultimately. Yeah. And But I don't delude myself to think that I know everything because I don't and I'm glad I don't because I like to learn and um, so that's and I and then I try to model what I want to see you know I, I want you to be forthright with me I don't expect you to always agree with me I'm going to respect you I'm going to tell you what I don't agree with but I'm going to do it in a respectful way and I respect I, I expect that to be reciprocated so you know I think culture and leadership is something that you just can't say, you know, we're going to go to this seminar and we're going to have this inspirational moment and we're going to go back and everything's going to be different. That's not my experience. My experience is just like day to day kind of demonstrating, you know, that you, 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 uh, you're a person of your word. You engage people. You try to get them to, to engage with you, share ideas, and that you are trustworthy and they're trustworthy and you, and then that's how it, and it's, it's over time. And if you kind of, you know, and you manage yourself, and, you know, I don't want to be the type of person that's like, oh, well, boss is here. What kind of mood are they in today, right? To me, it's most important. It's like, you know, uh, there's a moment between stimulus and response, right? And so I've done a lot of self-help kinds of books. I just like learning about different perspectives, whether it be Tony Robbins or Stephen Curry or whatever. And you always like, okay, look inward first. And then, and, and, you know, what, what am I focusing on? And what's the outward manifestation of what I'm focusing on in my behavior or whatever? And, and try to make sure you're in the moment, you're hearing people. It's, if you, you know, if you were perfect, you'd be doing that all the time, but you're not. You're a human being, you get tired and you, you have vulnerabilities and frailties. But that's what I try to do is I, I, I try not to be, I'm generally not a moody person. And um, I try to notice what I'm, tired and gonna be moody and withdraw yeah and i i exercise regularly because i need to get off to get the stress out so at least four times a week uh, you know during the summer on my bike or 
I'm on my stationary bike, and I find that really helps me. So that's how, you know, I think managing yourself at the executive level and being self-aware is what you need as an executive, is to manage your emotions and, and interpret things and then, you know, not, not react and, and have outbursts or, and then, but then having the courage, uh, if you couldn't do it in the moment, because not everyone's brilliant in the moment or it's too risky, to later go back and talk to somebody about, describe the situation, what the issue was with this situation and how it either you interpreted or how you, how you feel or the problem that will create for your role or whatever and why. And so I interpret, tell me your side. And this is what I need and this is what you need. Because lots of times you make inferences from people's behavior, you make assumptions, and all of a sudden you've made judgments on people and their motivations and you have to test that. And you have to have it, but you know, like anything, there's some people you're going to have an affinity to and you're going to gel. There's some people you're not going to have that, but you have to figure out how to work with them and you have to respect each other. And um, so, so that's a rambling answer, but I think it's managing yourself and I think it's, um, you know, treating people the way you want to be treated. And uh, to me, it's, it's, about, it's about harnessing the, the brain power of everybody. When you're hiring leaders, what do you look for? Desire. Desire. Okay. I look for desire. What does that mean? I look to me. It's like if you want to succeed, yeah, you generally do. Okay. Um, so you're looking so for some fire. I look for fire. I mean, I, you can have the greatest resume, but like if you're not going to do anything, so I look for baseline experience. Yeah. But um, I look for somebody that I think has that has the hunger to do it. That when I ask them, talk to me about talk to me about so you know the behavioral interviewing techniques. So. Talk to me about a time that you had a boss that you had to kind of convince to do something else, that you had a point of view and they weren't there. Tell me, did you ever have that? Tell me what you did. Yeah. What was your approach? Yeah. Um, talk to me about a time you had to work with somebody that wouldn't work with you. What'd you do? Well, did you ever have that? Well, what would you do? Would you? And try to get the behavioral part of it because I find that intelligence is uh, is multi-layered. There's, you know, there's content intelligence and this, but... Once, I think when you get to the higher levels, it's more about that and can I work through people? And okay. will people follow me? So you're looking me, for right? people that can work through people. Work through people and, then, and, and, uh, and can they lead them? And, and can they influence? And particularly in, in, um, in academic medical centers, there's often blurry lines of responsibility. And you don't always, you can't control everything, even though your job might be graded on some things that happen in other areas. So you have to learn how to influence people and to try to, like, how do you coax, cajole, how do you influence? And uh, so, you know, to me, it's baseline knowledge and desire. And then it's, you know, can they describe how they, how they have a point of view and how they drive and influence? So I'm going to throw a behavioral interviewing question at you. So um, can you give me an example of a difficult leadership lesson that you had to learn the hard way? Yeah, a couple, sadly. Um, <laughs> but you, we all but, do eventually. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I guess in some cases, you know, I am such a mechanic sometimes. You know, you mentioned I'm in the weeds. Yeah. And I know what you have to do. I've done it before. So, like, if I'm implementing a computer system or whatever I'm doing, and I get locked and loaded on the job yeah. and trying to get it done, and maybe not the context of the job and you might underweight the politics or the um, collateral damage of the relationships if you're saying look at i can't let this fail it's uh, accounts receivable or it's payroll and even though you're right 
you know, technically, someone come and get an auditor in there, yep, you were right. You didn't have enough, of, you, the blinders were on so much that you didn't have the, the, the lens opened up enough to let in all the light. Yeah. And um, and so that's that's something that, you know, and, and that's probably you're, you're tired or you're under duress or whatever. So, you know, you also have to make sure you're paying attention. Sometimes you're in a crisis. You you tend to, like, focus on just the, the issue at hand and, and maybe not enough of the of the relationships around you and you get yourself in some hot water here and there. And, you know, that's happened. And if I could do it again, I'd do it over and I'd done it differently. I would have been a little bit more receptive or listening and uh, but it's usually reciprocal you know anytime those situations happen there's there's more than one set of handprints at the uh, fingerprints at the crime scene it's, it's contributory <laughs> <like> that. but, <laughs> <laughs> that's true yeah um, so uh so i want to ask you that if if you could go back in time kind of to the early part of your career and talk to your you know 20 something self what would you tell them what advice would you give them for for the future I would probably tell that younger person to listen more, to be more confident too, um, not be afraid to, you know, because it takes a while to have enough courage to say something in a professional way that's not going to be like, oh, you're the best or you're, you know, you have to give a hard message to, to I guess, would to listen and then to also learn as quick as you can to, to set those boundaries. I, I, I did over time, but it took me a little while to get there. And it's okay. And people will respect you. Um, because, you know, I think all of us, to some degree, have this incredible desire to be liked. Yeah, Every, sure. You're right? Everyone. It's powerful I mean, drive. Yeah. Right. And so, and you can still be liked. Yeah. It might not be like the use. It might be more respect and like. But hopefully, maybe it'll be like, then respect, then they like even more because they see how you behave. So it's really, you know, have, have, listen to people more. Don't be thinking about, you know, ask them what they want. Because, you know, 94% of the time, I had to exactly the coach, you know, 94% of the time you're thinking about, you know, am I hungry? Am I tired? Uh, what's going on with my kid? You're thinking about your inner orbit. 6% of the time you're thinking about other people, right? And so recognize that in yourself and then recognize your person is it and then ask them what's important to you so i guess you know being becoming more self-aware younger that's like the key lesson that's probably really i transitioned to i learned how to work and and be collegial and drive people at lawrence it was much more complicated and i had so many constituents and i had to manage myself more at partners and and if i could learn that younger i probably would be you know even more effective and i might have had had some of those situations I just described to you where, you know, I wasn't quite at my, on my A game. Hmm. Um, did you have a mentor or mentors that, that played a significant role in your development? Not, not, not directly, I would say. Okay. Um, I, I w- watched people. Yeah. So I would, well, I, you know, my boss, probably the closest I would have is Peter Markell at, at Partners, but it wasn't like I'd call him and say, hey, I got the situation, can you talk to me about it? Like it, but, he would give me advice when I would tell him, you know, it wasn't always in that, but I would watch how he or other, you know, this, uh, this, uh, I mentioned John Glasser, I would watch the way he would navigate. He was a great speaker. He was funny. Uh, and then, you know, so you pick up a few tricks from all the, like a junk collector, like yeah. picking up things along the way and incorporating it into your repertoire. Or you'd watch somebody 
you know, handle something badly or something well and say, well, don't do it that way and why do it this way. <laughs> so I, I tried to watch other managers. I did have a, you know, a couple of directors at the time because I was a manager at an analyst level that said some things to me that were impactful, like get an A in your job. Yeah. You know, it's easier to beg for forgiveness than ask for permission. One of the CEOs at Showed Sims told me that and I said, that's good as long as you're right. Uh, but, you know, I generally had a good instinct of when I could do that and what calibrating the risk. And of course, you know, you, you, you got teachers and, and professors and your parents and everything else that, you, you know, pick up. My dad worked really hard. My, my mom did, too. And uh, my dad had a good sense of humor. And so you, you incorporate that. So you're kind of you're the summation of your experiences. But I, I can't necessarily say, you know, this one individual. But it's great if you can. I've done it. So, okay. So what do you think a good mentor does? I think a good mentor tries to say, well, if you thought about it this way, you try to network, et cetera, just do this, go to school here, should you take this job, all, you know, kind of advice. Yeah. But a good mentor will also tell them when, you, you know, look, I'm going to give you some brutal, I'm going to give you some brutal feedback here. Yeah. I mean, I don't, I, yeah, I don't think you've put enough into it. You yeah. know, you're expecting to be at this level, but talk to me, like, what, what have you done to do that? And so, okay. And it's almost like you, know, you got a coach who will someday, someday say, okay, all right, in five years, you know, you're whatever, you're the director of this function or you've got this, you know, this achievement in your, in your work. Now write the story how you got there, right? You, you've heard that, okay, right? Yep. So, so I, would, I would, you know, you're here, but tell me what you did. Tell me the story you did to, to get there and why you think you're there. And so that, that you know, that's sometimes... Important because I think lots of times when you know when your kids you grow up everyone gets a trophy and everything else right you know life isn't that fair all the time um, right and and uh, it's much more discerning. So you're a member of the Healthcare Financial Management Association, yeah. professional association yeah. we yeah. talked about. Mm-hmm. Uh, how important has that been to your career? I think it's probably pretty important since that's how you got your partner's job. Well, I, that's how I got recognized. Yeah, I mean, it was just, I mean, I was on committees and things. Uh-huh. Part, you know, part of it was like, I, I, I got a lot out of it just because, well, one, as I enjoyed people and I enjoyed the, the collegiality of meeting people every now and then, you know, at the meetings. Uh, I love to learn. And I didn't mind public speaking because of my teaching background and everything. And like anything, you, you, you have to talk to yourself and make sure you don't let anxiety get away from you when you're about to get in front of a few hundred people. But, but I generally like it because I like to learn. And uh, I think, you know, to just, it's just a great way to exchange ideas, create, you know, collegial relationships that you know you can call Mary or you can call Bob or whoever and say, hey, if you run into this, can you, you know, or, you know, I just, this reg just came out and uh, we're all reading it at the same time. This is how I see it. What, what do you see? And it's just that, you know, um, cross-pollination and sharing sharing of ideas and collegiality is, is invaluable. And then um, you never know. I mean, you know, you, you might make a connection and someone says, hey, I'm looking for something. And you, and, and you, you might, it might help you with your career. I think it, it inevitably will. So I think it's good to get involved. And plus, you know, it gets you closer with the thought leaders and you keep yourself fresh. So I have a personal ask. So I teach the finance and accounting sequence in our program. Yeah. So what are the most important skills that I should be focusing on for my students as I prepare them to be, you know, to enter the workforce as early career healthcare administrators and so forth? 
Well, one is I think they need you, you, the basics, which I think you're doing. You, that this is a P&L, this is revenues, expense, and, you know, and the, this is your balance sheet, and this is your owner's equity, et cetera. But what I think that, I think if you could, teach them a little bit about things that are non-cash and what like a free cash flow really is. Because you might say you lost $5 million from operations, but I threw off $90 million in free cash. How did that happen? Well, you had $15 million in amortization costs and you had $90 million in depreciation. Those aren't cash, right? right? So if you're running a business and you say, well, how am I going to make this? And should I look at a business from a operating margin perspective or should I look at it from an EBITDA perspective? And how do I, and, and then, you know, and then how do you cover your bonds and those kinds of things? I think a lot of the, your students, I suspect, are going to be in healthcare and maybe, you know, not for profit. Yeah. And maybe a little bit about quality of earnings. So I made 20 million this year. My allowance for doubtful accounts was 40 million last year, and it happens to be 23 million this year. Hmm. What happened? Well, I actually pulled my reserve through my P&L and said I didn't need it, right? Is that okay? Why do you believe that? So, like, changes in balance sheet reserves can be flown. So, if I wanted to say, well, I made this, or I had a one-time rebate from a manufacturer, or, or I lost money, but I refinanced my bonds and I had, you know, defeasance costs and advanced refinancing costs, and so those, that's not in the runway. So... It's more than just, you know, debit, credit, and, you know, what, which side of the T account you're on. Because if there are accountants, they're going to forget that. But it's more about, you know, how do I read it? And, and if I'm a business person and I want to drive change, how do I know I really, that this is a going concern? And how would I evaluate, if I want to look at it, that potentially the quality of earnings is either understated because one time or overstated? Yeah. Uh, I think that's that then you really understand kind of almost conceptually and intuitively like what's important to look at. I don't know if that. No, you know, that's great. So last question for a young person thinking about a career in health. Why should they think about healthcare financial management? First of all, I think there are people who I've seen them. They're CFOs. They become COOs. They become CEOs. So it's possible to go right. You're in the C-suite. So you're close to the action. You are very much the right-hand person uh, or the left-hand. One of the, the COO and the CFO are kind of driving the show, right? And um, so you are, you, and you're right at the board. You're right at the nexus of the of the uh, of the business. So it can be from that perspective. You're thinking about, you know, I have to drive performance, or I have to form capital so we can get this new lineac for cancer care or whatever it is. So that's I think if if you if you want to be in a role that's impactful and you're right at the the the, the uh, confluence of strategy and operations and everything else, it's just a great place to be. It's a lot of work though. I mean, I will say it's a lot of work, and like I said earlier, it, you got to let things roll off you on a number of levels. One is you know people are not always going to be happy that you have to make allocation decisions on resources. The other is you you can't like you can't be up every night, you know. And you just gotta like at, on the weekends you gotta try to put all these things that are in my in in a place, and and just try to relax and enjoy your family or whatever is important to you. 
and and try to do do a few things that you can kind of just whatever that is, whether it's reading or biking or whatever whatever it is, just to kind of put your mind at ease and get into a place where it's not on you all the time. So, but it's a great it's a it's I think it's a great job. Yeah, I think CEO might even be more fun. Yeah. But I mean, but I look at that, and that's not without its warts either, because you're, you know, not only you're the CEO, but you got to deal with all the docs, and you've got to deal with all the community. So, like, at least I can kind of go home more than Kate Walsh, who has to go to the mayor's thing or the governor's or whatever, and and deal with the philanthropy and everything else. And uh, so that's, but 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 it's intriguing when you think about, you know, trying to position your your organization. For success in the CEO job would be also, I think, very challenging. But there's, you know, there's, there's like any job has things that you're going to love, and there's going to be things that you don't love as much. But, you know, but I would say it's a, it's a, it's a great job, and if you want to be impactful to an organization, and it's a very, you know, generally it's a very respected job, and people know what you do, and and if you can kind of keep place in the black and and manage through it, you you do earn respect of of your of your colleagues. Well, thank you so much for your time today. I appreciate this. It was my pleasure. I enjoyed it very much. Thank you. You've been listening to the Health Leader Forge, a joint production of the College of Health and Human Services at the University of New Hampshire and the Northern New England Association of Healthcare Executives. Please go to our website, healthleaderforge.org, for more information or to leave comments about today's podcast. Look for Health Leader Forge podcasts on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and other podcast distribution sites. Thanks for being a part of the Health Leader Forge community, and we'll talk with you again in about two weeks.